Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and the Week in Sports Cars Show, brought to you by Cooper Tires, brought to you by the Justice Brothers, brought to you by the forceful exhales into the microphone from Graham Goodwin, editor of DailySportsCar.com, at a top-secret location somewhere in Europe on what we believe is a 1 to 1.5G Wi-Fi connection. I've just checked. It's 1.43G at the moment, MP. Good evening, everybody. From And a happy Easter, by the way, to all of those of you that either like chocolates or indeed uh, the beloved life of Jesus Christ. But uh, the, uh, the reality at the moment is, yes, secret location. More soon on exactly what I'm doing and where I am in Europe right this second. Well, I might just spoil that and tell folks that you are currently in France trying to establish the brand new World Endurance Championship for Deux Chevaux. So we're actually trying to bring back uh, uh, the yep. good old Citroën uh, 2CV uh, International 24-Hour Racing Championship. So uh, hopefully brought to you by... The Weekend Sports Car Soapbox, which needs a sponsor. Would you like a massive, massive piece of um, trivia to do with the De Chavaux? Uh, Please. And it's sports car related. Um, some year, some years ago, Peugeot 908, remember those lovely things, uh, went ac- along to um, uh, Clermont-Ferrand uh, to meet the uh, Peugeot team with a Michelin Peugeot. Uh, I could put this evening interlude and uh, were shown through the tyre plant where all the Michelin Motorsport products are made, and included in which were indeed the uh, workshops where all the apprentices are taught. And apprentices at Michelin are taught building the tyres that are then sold commercially for use exclusively on the Chevrolet uh, Citroëns. That's what they do. That is delightfully obscure. (laughs) Which is kind of a perfect way to start the show. All right, Graham, as the official person who chooses the various categories that we have here, where shall we start first? I think we've got to start with IMSA. And I should say, by the way, uh, right at the top of the show, I should apologize because of my obscure traveling habits this morning. Um, Did, I'm afraid, in error, forget to post a call for questions on Twitter. That will not happen again. I'm ashamed of myself. I've let myself down, blah, blah, blah. Um, But uh, I know we've got a a small but perfectly formed set of questions. And we're going to kick off with IMSA. And it's going to be a question to start with, MP, for you from Stephen Armstrong from uh, Facebook. And not a name I've seen before, so you're more more than welcome, Stephen. And uh, uh, Stephen says... Controversially, with the announcement of Ford shutting down the factory-backed GT program after Le Mans for WEC and Petit Le Mans for IMSA, do you expect Chip Ganassi to continue fielding GTs to privateer entry, or will the team be looking at other options such as a Ford DPI for IMSA, uh, other manufacturers of both series? Also, will the GTs be sold to other interested teams run by privateers such as Keating Motorsports uh, Le Mans program? this yeah you well, want to crack at that yeah <laughs> sure thank you for sending this in steve and actually replied to him a little bit directly uh on this uh and also we will certainly excuse your lack of twitter posting since i don't i'm not have yet to master my english colloquialisms i don't know if we're going to need to give you a good flogging or if you need to give yourself a good bollocking i'm not sure which one of those is 
if you can flog your bollocks, I, I maybe well, you- hamburgers and French fries. This is what I throw in whenever you go away, and I just make up words to fill in while your internet connection is gone. Hey, you're back! Oh, I'm back. Did yeah, I go? You went, and I just filled in random words. It's the uh, hamburgers and hot dogs. Uh, just general <laughs> things that I spring to saying when you're not there. And we're going to keep it in. I could edit this, and we would just sound... Well, I would be lying if I said professional. But, you know, look, we're trying to make a show while you're in Top Secret Site X. Uh, and we're here, so we're just going to keep going. So, anyways, uh, Stephen, your question here is a very interesting one in that uh, there was and there has been no announcement of Ford shutting down its factory-backed GT program. Um, some interesting stuff here, and it might be a little bit of a soapbox. Uh, I'll try not to too much. So, very quick little silly backstory. I got home the weekend before last from Long Beach and picked up some sort of nasty flu, whatever. It really knocked me out Tuesday, Wednesday. I slept most of Wednesday, most of Thursday. Friday, I woke up uh, mid to late morning and could kind of sort of think for the first time in many days and had a little bit of mental clarity. And so I said, hey, you've kind of been out of the loop for a day or two. You should look at the interwebs and see what's happened. And I read a headline on, I think, the very website that you happen to see, one that we no longer mention on this show because we just don't believe their attachment to truth and accuracy and reporting is what it should be. And it had a declarative, no question, Ford, done, factory, end of 2019, period. And then said, oh, wow. And no joke, went and looked in my inbox and said, while I've been asleep and or under the weather, did I miss some sort of email from Ford Performance, Chip Ganassi Racing, who knows, some sort of blockbuster thing like this where actual confirmation has been provided? Saw nothing. Uh, Then looked at my texts uh, and phone, you know, and I know we all have sources, Most folks might know I'm fairly well plugged into some of the folks involved here. Not a peep from anyone to say, hey, by the way, tomorrow we're going to be announcing this thing. Uh, Sit on it. Don't do anything with it. Just letting you know in advance so you're not caught by surprise. Nothing. So I'm like, whoa, holy cow. How did I miss this? I'm mad at myself for being literally asleep. And uh, then I clicked on the story and I read the story. And I read some very benign quotes that read a lot from Ford performance director, Mark Rushbrook, who I interviewed not too long ago myself. And they actually read very much like ones that I got from him uh, when I spoke with him on these kinds of topics. They were very benign. Uh, Yeah, like I've written and others maybe have written. I believe, Graham, you broke the story about uh, Ford actually selling their first customer car to Ben Keating and actually looking at doing pro-am customer support stuff with the cars. So again, all stuff that's been out there, um, but read the quotes and there was nothing said that aligned with the headline whatsoever. So then there's a little bit of confusion, Stephen, where you go, huh? So headline as just black and white as you could be factory program done end of 19. Then you look in the story and you go, yeah, I can't actually find anything that says that anywhere. 
does kind of mention some of the things I just went through, looking at Pro-Am, could, you know, some customer sales, blah, blah, blah. Nothing about farewell, we're done, you name it. So then I said, okay, let me call some people. Not going to name them, of course, but uh, some folks that may or may not be on the Ford side, some folks that may or may not be on the team side, and said, did you read the story? And one of the people said, yes. They said, I laughed when I read it, and my first thought in reading the headline was, uh, the, the first word that came to mind was clickbait. So here's where I, I want to take this quickly and wrap this quickly, Graham. Um, there, It's one thing to write a declarative piece of new information, and for that to be based on first-hand knowledge and fact. In that instance, you tend to get something uh, where either the person providing that information says, hey, I'm going to give you this, but don't put my name on it, right? You need to put this in your own words. And so you've probably read stories like that, Stephen, on a variety of sites. Um, RacingNewsOutlet.com has learned that Ford will be shutting down its factory program at the end of the season. Uh, It will be shifting, expected to shift to an all-pro-am customer sales model. Uh, Further details and public announcement due sometime in the near future. That's usually an instance where, again, a serious insider, if not two or three, because you would certainly want more than one point of uh, confirmation, has revealed this information, said, I'm trusting you with it. You can use it. Just don't put my name on it. That's where you get the, the, the racing outlet is vouching for this being a fact. The other example is big declarative thing followed by a quote from somebody at whatever, in this case, Ford or anyone else, where a person says the words that match the headline. When you have neither of those things happening, it usually leads to someone gambling. Gambling on this being the outcome. And so the other person that I spoke with basically said, huh, this news to us. (laughs) Looks like we're learning, learning about what we're doing by from a racing website and uh hmm interesting i'll just say this Stephen. if this ends up being the case and Ford does decide that they are done factory gt program is finished at the end of the year in WEC and imsa we'll be sad that's been presented as an option that i've written about weeks ago others have written about so there's nothing you know again this is not some big crazy possibility They could do a variety of things. They could do a DPI in 2020 if the budget is found. Uh, They could wait till 2022 for that. They could do a hybrid of factory GTs plus helping to run some customer independent cars. There's all kinds of stuff that could happen. From what I wrote about a few weeks ago, it said, here are some of the things I think might happen, but no decision has been made. And I know that to be a fact because I have spoken with at least eight people, I would say, before I put that peop- before I put that story together. We don't have a direction yet. We have some ideas. And at least checking in the end of last week, I got the same feedback. Uh, this might be where we end up. We could very well shut this thing down. But that is not the place. We're not making that declaration today 
because that is not the declaration to make. So, again, it's one thing to report fact because it is fact. It's another thing to present something as a fact and gamble that you're right. And if you are, great. But you didn't actually write something that was fact-based. What you did was roll the dice and hope you're proven accurate. And if so, you could say, ah, see, I was right all along. I apologize that there's been confusion created by that. And and as you mentioned to me, Stephen, as well in a follow-up, there have been some other sites that have picked up on that, as if it's a fact. Again, this might be confirmed tomorrow, but at least for those that I speak with who truly know, it's not a fact. We've already, I think I also sent you the link to my story, which painted the rest of the scenarios here, which I just kind of ran through briefly, Graham. So um, we are waiting to find out what is going to happen, uh, what other privateers will be identified to potentially buy and run the cars in GTEM in the WEC or just straight up GTLM in IMSA. So, you know, we're still a bit of a crossroads, uh, guys, and hopefully we'll have some direction here much sooner than later. Fairly succinctly put, I've not really got very much to add to that, uh, Marshall, I'll be honest with you. Um, what can you say? Uh, my view is you give people an opportunity to actually give them space to make those kind of announcements themselves. And uh, I look forward with the blinding inevitability to the as reported first on uh, things that follow. But it's just getting boring. I'm sorry. It's boring. Um, you know, it, it particularly, frankly, discourteous if you actually use extensive quotes from a particular individual um, and th- those quotes don't support the premise of your story. If they said it, then say they said it. If they didn't say it, don't. Um, simple as that. Um, okay, let's move on from that slightly disappointing tale uh, to Ryan Anton. Uh, it's a GTLM question again. What's well, wrong? We're starting off on a positive front here. Yeah, the second <laughs> one is, is a little bit of a kick in the crotch, but off we go. Uh, yeah, let's. Uh, what's wrong with BMW RLL? They won at Daytona, but in, been consistently behind podium placings recently. Is it more a problem of driver team management, the car, or are they just in a slump? A couple of ideas came to mind, Ryan, when I first read your question. Certainly at Daytona, they were in a very, very happy situation. We know that GTLM... I guess we could say this about every class, or I should should say this, but in particular, GTLM is always very susceptible to small BOP changes, uh, something where yeah, the BMWs were just uh, pretty darn strong, did some really good things at Daytona. I would say coming off of their debut, the uh, M8 GTE, coming off their very displeased debut in 2018 at Daytona, and we, we've mentioned this countless times, but BMW went as far to distribute a very terse press release to a limited number of people in the media center during the 2018 race, saying, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, this doesn't work for us, this is nonsense, we're looking forward to working with IMSA to find a more competitive BOP for our vehicles. I just overamped that a little bit, but they were very grumpy. It did not surprise me. After the cars picked up pace in 2018 and they learned a lot about them, it didn't surprise me that coming back to Daytona in 2019, they were in a very favorable BOP disposition. So 
I would say, let's look at Daytona as a bit of an outlier. Um, Sebring, they didn't really appear to have a lot to show uh, at Long Beach, just here recently, kind of, sort of similar. And, yeah, what I'm beginning to wonder, and I can't say I still have to, this is another thing where uh, I'm not going to make any bold declarative headlines about things that might happen, but I'm not sure if they will. Um, Knowing that there are questions over the future of whether BMW will continue to race its factory M8 GTEs uh, in the WEC and in IMSA, I've just had this little flirting thought in the back of my head saying, hmm, I know in other forms of racing where manufacturers either are planning to exit at the end of the year, or in some cases, Formula One is often the uh, the example where a team has realized this car is a dog. Uh, we're going to have, we've gotten through however many races, but we've come to the determination that we can throw a ton of money and time at it, and it's only going to get slightly better. We're never going to get to the podium. Uh, let's just step off from trying to develop this thing and start planning on next year's vehicle. Uh, my head is bouncing somewhere in there as a possibility, Ryan. I am not claiming either one of those things to be true. I'm just saying in terms of things I'm thinking about, and I'll be asking questions about here when I get to mid-Ohio uh, in a week and a half or so, it's that thing. Hey, these cars could and should be quick um, a lot. What What's maybe some of the, the thoughts or reasoning why we haven't had that consistency? Is it all BOP? Um, you know, again, it can be. But part of me just wonders, you know, is there something else going on? Or is this just simply a case of BOP uh, being a bit of a limitation? They have really strong drivers. They have very strong engineering, a very strong technical director. They've got all the layers of stuff that they need. They brought in my friend Piers Phillips, who's been around sports car racing, Lamar racing forever, uh, as their general manager during the offseason. And although he has enjoyed himself in IndyCar the last couple of years uh, across, with the uh, Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports team, uh, him coming in to become the general manager overall of everything that BMW Team RLL happens to do, just in terms of expertise, sports car racing is really, that's his comfort spot. So they are fortified, Ryan, with a lot of really smart people, some excellent drivers, Cars are certainly the one outlier in the class. It's the one non-supercar, super skinny, super low, super light, super everything. Uh, But through BOP, um, IMSA, uh, and I guess the WEC as well, has the ability to make those cars competitive. Just haven't seen that the last two rounds. Mid-Ohio is going to tell us a lot. Uh, BMWs are known for their handling, uh, their directional change capabilities, and that's a place a place that places a high, high demand on that. So we're going to find out at Mid-Ohio, frankly, whether there is something adrift elsewhere in the program or if it's just straight-up BOP. Uh, I should say, by the way, I did ask the question very directly, Jens Market at Sebring, about the intentions of reviewing not just the WEC uh, GTE Pro program, which is already on the record as saying, but the GTLM program in IMSA, and that got a negative. That is not currently, I'm told, uh, so no immediate risk, it would seem, from that statement, uh, back in in March, to the IMSA program. Um, last one for the moment, MP, on 
uh, IMSA. It comes from Matt Niedert, and he says, Excitement building for the first round of the IMSA WeatherTech Sprint Cup Championship in Mid-Ohio in a couple of weekends' time. Last week saw Compass Racing's announcement of their long-awaited McLaren entry, that with the brand-new 720S GT3. With the IMSA entry list coming out in a couple of days, are you anticipating any additional entries in the new Sprint Race Championship format for GT3? Hamburgers and French fries. No, Matt, I uh, I do not, my friend. I would say, uh, granted, could there be one? If there were two additional entries, it would be phenomenal. So I hope to be proven wrong. Uh, so let's just say that for the inaugural IMSA GTD Sprint Cup round... I'd hate to see one car running in it uh, declared for it. Now, granted, and and I mean a true uh, Sprint Cup uh, entry, not another entry saying, hey, you know, um, I'm not even sure if they could, but someone else saying, well, looks like the overall championship's out the door. We're just going to go ahead and declare for the Sprint Cup uh, going forward. But, yeah, unless we do have... Matt, I would say five, four to five, three to five. I'm not sure on the number. Unless we have almost a handful of entries for that, I think we can just start the clock on uh, whomever wins it being the inaugural and the final winner of the Sprint Cup. Because if it's not taking off in its first season, then, of course, there's the possibility it could in the second. But... You know, I'm a big believer in if you're going to float a little test balloon to see if something works, you know, if you got one car, two, maybe three at most turning up for the first round of it, it just tells you it's an idea that uh, maybe is not meant to survive this world very, very long. All right. Guess what? We are jumping in, I would say, at a probably the almost earliest point in recent memory from IMSA to your bailiwick, as my father would say, Weck Aslam Elms ACO, also known as the world of WEC Asian Le Mans series, ELMS and ACO. Hey, Graham Goodwin, I swear like a month or two ago, our friends in France at Le Mans put out an entry list and there was like, I don't know, like 60 cars on it and stuff. And <laughs> there were like some grumpy people that weren't on it. And then I swear, maybe this is part of my flu head cold stupor as well. I swear I read something about there's like 62 cars being entered now. Um, our pal Johan Heredia says... Why did the ACO expand the already confirmed 60-car Le Mans list to 62? Does it have anything to do with the controversial one entry only for United Autosports? Um, I think the answer is it doesn't. It doesn't. Why have they done it? They've done it for two reasons. One is because they can, and two is because the thought has occurred to them. Commercially, it's a smart thing to do, having more cars and more activity around those cars and paddock means mumfers, etc etc i think the days of these big 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 budgets uh, on track and off track factory efforts appear to be waning very rapidly so they're going to have to start to lean very heavily on their more professional motorsport team based pro-am 
um, core, uh, to use a fashionable political term. Um, does it anything, anything whatsoever to do with uh, United Autosports? Well, they certainly profit from it. If you've listened to this week's Inside the Sports Car Paddock, you'll hear from uh, a very, very happy Alex Brundle, who's going to be uh, one of the guys to profit from that decision. Uh, do I think... Hamburger. So I think he has. But I, uh, but I think he would be amongst the first to say he is very pleasantly surprised. I think it's a very pleasant surprise. I think... It is a first step towards what we know is to come, which is a larger permanent grid from 2023 with a revised, new, upgraded uh, Pitts Paddock uh, made grandstand facility for the centenary of the great race. Uh, I expect it will be higher than 62 by that point. But I can only say really at this stage, it's, you know, in a period where, a lot of words are spoken in the direction of our friends and friends that are of a not particularly generous nature. I think on this one, they've got it right. So the key here is the building of two additional garage stalls. So I think the answer is these are going to be two very temporary structures. I suspect if they're not tented, it won't be a million miles short of that. I do expect United Autosports to be taking up both those positions because that's just the smart way to do it. Uh, it's not a matter of first come, first served. It's a matter of actually what fits best. It does have to accommodate the fact that Toyota have a contract that actually says they will have the first two pit stalls. They will not object if it's a team of professional quality being, if, if you like, ahead of them. It is about making sure they get the best possible chance. I just think it's smart. I think it's the right move to make with the assets they've got available right now. We can also mention here a hashtag breaking exclusive scoop on the weekend sports cars. Those two <laughs> new garage stalls will actually, they will not, as Graham correctly pointed out, they will not be the full cement standard ones. Uh, the overhead protection will actually be 100 orange drinking for Holland rain ponchos taped together to try and shield yep. the teams from the elements. So if you are either a member of the drinking for Holland squad or you just have duct tape, I believe there are jobs to be had on pit lane at Le Mans. All right, Graham. And there's another thing to say about the design, by the way, is that uh, in order to get the maximum possible daylight, the rear wall of the garage will be made up from those small beer bottles you can get from the Carrefour. So effectively, full windows at the back and again, provided by our good friends on the campsite. So, you know, linking with the fans at every single point, they, the ACO just get better and better. I believe, yes, this is the, the first two man cave garages at Le Mans. <laughs> so that's pretty awesome there. All right, let's go to our Nick Howers, who says, based on the evidence that it is impossible to equalize the performance of a factory and privateer team, as much as the factory LMP1 teams bring and have brought to the WEC and at Le Mans 24 commercially, do we think the WEC currently would be actually be better off without Toyota, unless there are at least two factory teams, as a competitive spectacle with genuine competition for the overall win in each race? And would that be better for the series than the star name drivers and money that Toyota do bring? A perfectly 
a reasonable question, and it's a question that's come up before. I think I've said before on the show uh, that after the initial regulations were published, I did feel the need to go and ask for clarification. Were those regulations put in to encourage Toyota to stay, or were those regulations put in to encourage Toyota not to stay? Um, first things first, my admiration for the team and the spectacular technology that they employ in the TSO 50 knows very few bounds. However, I think they are becoming as aware as everybody else is that they have given people a massive nut to crack. And that is a problem. I can answer the question, if I may, Nick, in a slightly different way. I had a conversation just a few days ago with someone involved in one of the current LMP1 privateer teams. And we came to a not dramatically dissimilar uh, kind of conclusion around the same point in the conversation, which was it's time for equivalence technology to go. I think it would be farcical to suggest that that would happen this side of Le Mans. We already have the acceptance from the ACO, from the rulemakers, that for the coming new regulations that BOP, balance of performance, which is more than subtly different, is going to be required for Alternative solution be on the table. I'm going to suggest this right here, right now. I don't want to see Toyota go, but I do want to see closer competition. By the end of the Le Mans 24 hours, the odds are that uh, they will have that Toyota Kazoo Racing will have won the world championship for the second time, uh, and they will have won a second consecutive Le Mans 24 hours. I think it's time after that for the ACO to sharpen their scalpels and start with BOP rather than EOT. And I certainly think it's about time we got to the stage where whatever stored collateral that Toyota actually got in this game is put to one side in the interest of the sport. Um, and I want to see Rebellion and SMP and anybody else who we're going to see on the 2019, 2020 FI hamburgers and french fries with no artificial restrictions uh, with no artificial restrictions placed upon them uh, to get stuck into potential overall race wins at the very least i'm gonna go to holger opelt who says second try for this one and thank you holger for sending this in we do ask if we don't get your question and you really want us to get to it and we don't please send it in again sometimes it takes two or three i believe we even had a fourth try from one very persistent listener graham uh, Holger says, with the upcoming hypercars seeming to have much lower lap times at Le Mans than today's LMP1s, sometimes even slower than current LMP2 cars, what kind of, quote, slowdown measures will the LMP2s have to sustain in order to keep some sort of gap to the top class? Uh, it's a very, very good question. I think there's a degree of trepidation from the LMP2 teams as to what might come. You know what, Holger? I think that's a perfectly sensible question. On pace for the LMP2 cars, it's not just that they've got, at the moment, less power, um, less advanced aero than the LMP1s, but the fact that they have to, by mandate, have to have a Pro-Am driver squad. You sort of kind of tease towards a question that's got real validity in the era of balance of performance in a top prototype class. Why the hell not? 
if actually what you've got is a program squad, then they should not be on pace anywhere close over a 24-hour race distance at the very least, and certainly over a six-hour race distance, anywhere close to where an LMP1 car should be with or without balance of performance. The reality here is all you can reasonably kind of look at are the kind of rather blunt instruments that are reduction of aero efficiency, addition of weight, and reduction of power. Um, I don't look forward to any of those with any degree whatsoever of it's time for the powers that be to take a step back from where we currently are and think is where we're heading where we actually want to be and if that's not what's uh, emerging from the fog that appears to have descended upon this then perhaps it's time to take several steps back from that debate and think are there some more sensible things we could do here to preserve a satisfactory exciting sustainable global sports car platform there are still options there are still ways forward to do that we've offered one or two of them on this show before both you and i mp but i happen to think maybe it's my background in communications and pr and whatever else you want to uh, put to that which is you never waste time sitting down with smart people with you know and looking forward spread those wings a little bit wider spread your focus a little bit wider and my guess is you can find a better solution than what i think we're looking at right now there we go uh let's see we're gonna go to one here that uh is an interesting one and it seems to be coming seems to it's almost a weekly standard question and i say that in the most positive way uh but it seems that our dear listeners are reading the tea leaves in similar ways to you and I. This comes in from Oscar uh, on Facebook. It says, at what point does the ACO admit defeat and instead of the uh, car car slash hypercar rules that no one seems to want, um, they make the call to IMSA to adapt a version of the DPI rules with a hybrid component. Uh, how's this? Oscar and I can maybe fill in a little bit here, and I think maybe keeping this at the little bit stage is uh, not a bad thing. I th- There's just an ongoing, sneaking suspicion that this might actually be the thing that happens. I'm not saying I have any facts. I'm not, I mean, just saying my gut, my, my prodigious gut, is just making me think that... Unless we have some truly locked down, stupendous rules that are in our hands ASAP, I think we're just getting to that true critical point where it would be almost impossible for manufacturers to pull off a 2020 vehicle uh, for this, whatever it is, hypercar, car car thing. Just There's another aspect, too, that I don't know if we've really delved into this point, Graham. Maybe you can, can close this close this topic off uh with this it's one thing to say hey we plan on doing this in 2020 and roughly september is when we're gonna hit the track and go racing with it it's another thing to actually produce final true final 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 rules that automotive manufacturers uh custom racing 
manufacturers, uh, anyone that might want to get in. But by and large, we're talking about the replacement here for LMP1 top-tier manufacturer-level competition. Those manufacturers don't just need rules in time to make cars for that September 2020 date, Graham. They also need the arrival of those rules to land at a place on the calendar where they can go and request the money to do that from their board of directors, from their shareholders, from whomever. It's one thing for a Jim Glickenhaus, small, privately funded organization to say, hey, I want to do this, I'm going to spend my own money. If we're talking about getting, name any major automotive brand to opt in, there's also a financial cycle that I think is maybe being forgotten here that, great, if the rules came out tomorrow, does that mean those brands are sitting on the budget to commission that amount of money? I mean, that's maybe, the I would say, one of the biggest landmines uh, that could trip this whole process up. Uh, I think all of that is completely fair comment. I think there's, that, that we're, we are not in a position to determine whether some of the perceptions that have featured in things that we've said and some things that we've written and things that have certainly been said and written by others are actually true. Is it the fact that of individual OEMs and factories have determined the direction of rule sets, the detriment of others? Is it the fact that um, that some of the statements that have been made by some of those OEMs in those technical working groups, of which, you know, I've got some understanding of what goes on at some of those groups, but I certainly don't have the minutes of them. Is it the fact that there's been a degree of misinformation, misdirection at times, sometimes potentially unwittingly because things change and sometimes perhaps with whatever motivation there is there. The honest answer is we don't know. All I would say is if you believed all the worst things that have been written about this everywhere, then people would need to be fired. It's as simple as that. The fact that those people haven't been would tend to indicate it's a bit more complex than that. And for me, we are, I think, at a bit of a watershed here. I do think there are opportunities, massive risks. That comes with a bit of a body blow to pride when you have to admit defeat in certain things. What I'm being told, I'm told repeatedly when I ask the questions, um, however I ask them, and sometimes it's fairly stridently, sometimes it's maybe a little bit more politely, is we are now at a stage where we've just got to wait for those manufacturers to make a determination, to make a decision and make an announcement or not. We're getting to the stage where if it's or not for very much longer, then the very least you're going to be staring at is delay. I think a delay would be a great opportunity to get smart people around the table, to put those uh, that self-interest that has determined a lot of the decision-making all around our world of sports car racing for many years, put it to one side and just look at the reality. The reality is the time for our form of racing in the way in which we know and appreciate it is getting shorter without a shadow of a doubt. We now need a degree of medium and longer-term planning um, with real urgency. 
and the sustainability of those decisions is getting tougher too because the budgets, the available budgets and timescales for those budgets is getting tougher too. I just think it's time that smart people showed us how smart they are, not how powerful they are. And please get around those tables, get inside those rooms because we know that when you do it, it can be a powerful thing. Let's see what can come out of that. Also mentioned, which well, I'll just wrap there as well. So just from an annual budget cycle, uh, most manufacturers are looking in manufacturers. If we're talking here in the States, we're talking end of summer uh, in terms of scheduling and budgeting for the following year. Um, this just could be something depending on the brand, which region it's in. I mean, Japan, I know, has a completely different fiscal calendar. So there's a lot of things to take into account, Graham. But just based on what it takes to make a hypercar program happen in to hit the track and race in September of 2020, uh, the opportunity to sit in front of the board and request tens of millions of dollars, if not uh, a three to five year program with an ultimate commitment of 100 to 150 million, whatever it is. This isn't something where if the rules were to come out tomorrow, a whole bunch of manufacturers would say, yes, we're in, depending on the region, country, uh, fiscal calendar that they work from, that time may have passed to request it to have something ready for 2020. Uh, so again, that's where major concern is coming in here. I'll also throw in, which I hadn't really thought of because I guess it fell out of my brain, but when you and I were at Sebring five weeks ago, was it? Six weeks ago? Uh, we sat in on the update from the ACO and FIA where I believe they said uh, when asked when will the rules be out, they said uh, they didn't want to give us a hard date, but they intimated two to three weeks, kind of, sort of, end of the month-ish. That was the middle of March. We're now getting close to winding down April. So. Oh, I, th- I, th- I think the manufacturers have got those rules. I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain of it, in fact. I think they are... Uh, in the, the rules are certainly in the possession of those manufacturers. There's at least one that I know directly of those rules. Uh, your my good uh, good friend uh, Gary Watkins had a, what has been reported to me by someone that knows as being a direct leak of those rules. So I think what's out there um, as a template for what we're to look forward to is not inaccurate. Um, you know, it's. It is very much a kind of mix and match version of what we initially uh, saw. I don't think there's any doubt at all in the manufacturers' minds what it is that's being proposed. The thing that is currently lacking is them committing to programs. We, you know, we've got a choice. We wait and see, or they come up with a plan B. I think they're giving themselves a degree of latitude but I think you and I both know, Marshall, that clock is ticking very loudly now. Just like my body clock is... T- oh, no, <laughs> sorry. Very different clock. Uh, all right. We're getting not too far from the end of our Weck Aslam Echo Elms or whatever the heck we decide to call it week by week. Uh, our pal Jacob Bame says, I apologize for the amount of words used here. 
I can't seem to find a way to make the question shorter and still comprehensible. Since last week's episode, in which Graham had a bit of a soapbox moment about OEMs needing to commit to hypercar right here and now, we've had yet another story of Zach Brown pushing towards enforcement of road-based cars in the class. I've read the latest publicly available version of the regs, the December one. Took the Sebring changes into account, and I can't see literally anything, all caps, in there that prevents McLaren from committing with a road-based car right now. Why do you think Zach has brung up that idea when we've already had him saying on record that the time frame is bindingly narrow anyways? Okay, I'll answer that one as bluntly as I possibly can. Read the story. Say to Zach to his face all publicly here, Zach, tell us what you want and bring it. Just tell us what you want and bring it. If it is a new hypercar of which we're unaware, tell us what you want to do and bring it. If you can't bring it till 2022 or 2023, then fine. Tell us what you want to do and bring it. If you want to resurrect the GTE car we all know you have and boost that to 700 horsepower, if that's what you want to bring, tell us what you want to do and bring it. But stop now, please. You know, the... Let's do this, and then let's do that, and let's do the other. Please just commit with something, because at the moment, I'll be blunt, I don't think there is a credible program today. Um, I don't think there's a timescale for a credible program. And that constant moving of the goalposts is doing nothing other to confuse matters. I don't want to have a crack at Zach here, because I think he's responding to questions that are good things that come from the mind and the office of Zach, uh, not least of which, um, you know, is what's happened in IndyCar with, uh, with Fernando Alonso and is happening again now. I think it's a very good thing. But right now, we need less and not more confusion. Um, I'll, I'll go on the record here as saying that the, the story that Zach's been linked with is GTE+, Plus, um, which is this, uh, you know, whether or not it's part of a plan B, whether or not, whatever it is, is to do with boosting up GTE machinery to being far more powerful, potentially with a bit more aero and being a credible, potentially a bridging point for where we are at LMP1. I think it's bullshit. I'll be honest with you. I think I know it's been looked at. I think it's possibly been suggested again. I think there have been some statements attributed to um, current manufacturers, which I don't believe have credibility. Uh, if it turns out to be true, great. I'll be wrong. And then someone will be happy don't believe it in any way is credible. I absolutely do not believe the majority of current GT manufacturers are in support of that being the chosen solution to go forward with. Um, you know, as far as McLaren are concerned, as someone who came to the career I now have, linked directly in no small part to to mail stripping and indeed to the McLaren F1, uh, which though those two items, by the way, have a very limited kind of cut through. Uh, but I'm a massive fan of the brand. I love the road cars that they've currently got, like the, the race cars they've currently got. But guys, if you're going to be part of the debate, please come forward with something credible. Please tell us what it is you want and then go and deliver that. But don't tell us that you'd like to do something, as McLaren have, with the um, – they were part of the request to the rulemakers to say – some regulations that uh, allow us to do hypercars. 
based on road cars. And then what seems like five minutes later, be the key part of someone else's story that says what they actually want is a boosted GTE car, which, by the way, they don't have anyway. Um, what do you want? You know, and if you want that, then commit to it and commit to a timescale or at least a notional timescale. Because at the moment, you're either part of the debate and part of the solution or, frankly, you're part of the problem. Yeah, people. All right. Uh, was, that a, was that a miniature? Was that like a 143rd scale soapbox? Uh, I stood on a soapbox and my foot fell through it. So it was oh, kind of sort okay. of in a soapbox, not that. on a soapbox. The second box. instance we got... Well, that might have been our third. I don't know. Maybe I need to keep track. We used to keep track of usage of balance of performance, BOP. Maybe we need to start tracking, limit ourselves to three soapbox moments. We're still looking for a fake sponsor for the weekend sports car soapbox. So if you've got ideas, please let us know. All right, Graham, let's go to our last three in your beloved category. Comes in from our man, Buddy Campbell. Hey, buddy. He says, what happened to the Nissan we used to know in the run-up to the GTR LMP1? Did the failure of that program cause cuts to Nismo, or did they just lose interest in racing outside Japan and want only to move forward with Formula E, also known as Formula E? Um, I think there's quite a complex answer here, but, but bear with me. I'll try and keep it as concise as possible. Uh, the world has moved on. Uh, the GTRLM was clearly not a success, but I think you also have to look at the efforts often decried of two particular guys that were involved in how things develop for motorsport globally for Nissan and Nismo. And one of them was Darren Cox. Darren moved onwards. Of did. What Darren had was the, the knack of finding a way to gather the efforts of a global company. That is not an easy thing to do. He got a lot of flack for this being blah, 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 you know, marketing rather than engineering-led. I've never accepted that that's true. Whether or not the engineering worked does not mean that it wasn't engineering-led. Did it have the soaring budgets of Porsche and uh, and uh, an Audi, for instance? No, it didn't. But the people who criticize it for that tend to be the people that criticize those budgets as being excessive anyway. So I'm not really quite sure. So I'll put that to one side. Um, the other one is Andy Palmer. And I'll be coming to a question about, uh, about Aston Martin in a moment. Andy Palmer moved on from Nissan to be, uh, you know, the, uh, the man at the helm of Aston Martin. Losing those two key decisions provided problems for Nissan. The two main drivers behind their global motorsport program had disappeared. And two is that I just don't think they had a voice in the room globally that was effective anymore. And I think we've seen the net result of that over the last few years. The things have withered on the vine. There hasn't been uh, investment in it. The world, as I say, has moved on in terms of uh, the pressures on those OEMs. And I think that's what's gone wrong. And, and, and it saddens me because the excitement that actually was provided around that, that brand and the sub-brand that is Nismo was palpable. You know, it brought with it lots and lots of people. Um, and, you know, and it's gone. I, 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 I'm saddened by it, I'm afraid. And I think some of the behaviours that we've seen 
from Nismo, from Nissan in relation to some of their long-time partners has been pretty sad, frankly, in the last few months. Cannot disagree. They are all in with Formula E, their hybrid technology. That's great. I mean, they... Hey, he's back, boys and girls. Boy, that's... Where that's, did you lose? Where did, no, where did no, you no, lose you, me? No, no, I'm going to keep this in. You finished off on Nissan. Uh, just whatever top secret site, man, they are really doing their best to block <laughs> block all reasonable Wi-Fi connections here. So uh, big thumbs down to uh, Area 52, or Area 62. Maybe that's what it is now with a new entry list for Le Mans. Uh, yeah, no, I'm with you. Uh, I, yeah. Uh, there is something about Nissan and motor racing that is core to its soul. The same way that Soichiro Honda uh, embraced, and from day one, motor racing, we can say the same thing about Mazda, and we can say it about many brands of whichever um, nationality. It saddens me. You and I have friends. You and I have very good and close friends who work within the Nissan, Nismo, whatever world. It just saddens me to see this global step back uh, in in so many ways from their motor racing activities. I hope they return. I have no sense as to whether they will. In a just general, you know, whether it's open wheel, sports cars, blah, blah, blah. I don't really consider Formula E open wheel, although I know it is. But um, I just look forward. I hope I hope we get Nissan back. They're really an important pillar of uh, motor racing history. And, yeah, I, I think less of them for what they have done and would like to think more of them but it's going to take them reconnecting with their motor racing history to say, yeah, we might not be spending as much as we were, but we want to let folks know how important it is to us. The Formula E stuff, that's marketing and promotions, man. It's nothing more than that. There's no passion in that. There's nobody who just wakes up going, oh, what is the one thing I love in motor racing more than other? The Nissan Formula E program. <laughs> and, and, or, other- or any Formula E program. There's no. It's a passionless thing. It's a marketing exercise. It's a mild tech development thing. But um, I just... Uh, how's this? I'd, in 20 years, I'm going to go and try and find someone to regale me with stories of when they saw the Nissan Formula E car uh, whiz by at whatever street racing circuit and tell me how that just fundamentally stoked their passion for motor racing. I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> I think there's one, of the, there's one other thing we should mention here, by the way, and that is something we haven't mentioned this, which is Carlos Ghosn. Okay, Carlos was ultimately the individual that put a couple of bits, uh, a couple of pretty major projects to the sword. History at some point in the relatively near future will determine whether or not Carlos Ghosn has been the, uh, the victim of one uh, of a world class conspiracy against him or whether or not he proves to be a world class asshole uh, that has actually raped and plundered that company of very large amounts of money uh, whilst systematically dismantling uh, various parts of the way in which that company traded 
and marketed itself? I don't know. Frankly, at the moment, I think only one person knows, and that's Carlos Cohn. Uh, we'll find out enough. If that is the case, it might very well be that it's not a different answer than one we've given, but it's an answer that actually has another chapter to it, which was, did somebody do the things that they did in order to hide the things that they'd done? Do the things that they did to hide the things that they'd done. I, that, that might be the most brilliant phrase ever spoken on the weekend sports <laughs> cars, by the way. Uh, and also, we got a cursey. Man, we got a foul-mouthed Graham Goodwin this week. Man, we're on the boil, I tell you. Um, all right, we'll go to our final question. In your neck of the woods comes in from our man James Counter. James, thank you for always sending in something thought-provoking. It says, whilst not a sports car question, Graham, do you know what marketing value and technical benefit Aston Martin gain from their Formula One partnership, I assume, with Red Bull, and if that's likely to affect a hypercar program? It's a great question, James. Um, the answer is, I've spoken a couple of times to Andy Palmer about the the link with Red Bull. Uh, Andy, some time ago, before they committed to the Formula One link, uh, said that he would not do so without there being a technology link. Clearly, Valkyrie is that link. Uh, this is obviously their top-end hypercar, uh, road hypercar program, the uh, Adrian Newey-led program. Um, what do I think they get from it? Well, let's put this way. On any given Sunday, uh, on track at Formula One events, you will see Aston Martin road cars. Uh, you will see any amounts of Red Bull led and Aston Martin assisted social media content involving their road cars and the Red Bull racing drivers. You will see a range of other marketing projects, as well as what's happening in the background at the moment with the Valkyrie program. So the answer is, I think there's plenty going on. Will that eventually lead to a hypercar program? I think they are the next most credible uh, body to come forward with a program after Toyota. When will they do that? It certainly won't be in year one. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that what was being queued up for us by David King from Aston Martin Racing and Aston Martin Lagonda at Sebring was, was queuing up the fact that it would be somewhat later than that. They have a product range which, frankly, could have been designed around those regulations. The fabulous display they made at the Geneva Motor Show with four mid-engined hypercar, supercar uh, Aston Martins with the Aston Martin Valkyrie, the Valkyrie MR Pro, uh, I think it was the DB003, and then the concept for a more mainstream um, mid-engine product. If Aston Martin don't do it, I can't really see as close to the, the templates. They, for me, are now the number two prospect for the ACO. Um, will they do it with or without Red Bull? Would Red Bull do it with or without them? They're really interesting questions we don't know the answers to yet. Well, we're here to provide answers, so get with the damn game, Goodwin. Um, <laughs> all right, let's move on to what I occasionally refer to as Hagen Eral, General. And let's see, we don't have too many here, so this might be this might Quick. be a vaguely early doors Ooh. episode of the week in sports cars, my man. Uh, and we got a train going by about three quarters of a mile away. Or maybe that's just 
in my head. Another one from our man Jacob, who says, MP, where do you get the fine tunes that serve as uh, my podcast musical themes? Uh, I'm asking not only about the current ones, but also the ones that already did their time in the previous episodes. I don't have a single place that I get them, Jacob. There are uh, a wide variety of royalty-free music, uh, cinematic, music bed-type um, places on the good old interwebs. So what I do, not as often as I would like, though, but as I often do, I will go and just see what's new in a variety of categories and see what interests me. And I actually started doing that yesterday a little bit and have uh, a page open right now. So since I'm rather keen of uh, the things that I find. Um, yeah, I hate to say it, but on the topic of not answering questions, um, I'm just going to go with kind of keeping those little resources to myself right now because I like, I like what I have. I'll just mention very quickly, though, I did hear, which struck me as a bit odd, um, there's one site that I go to more than the others by a wide margin and it's not super well known and so what I found there and downloaded and used for something Graham um, used it a couple times and then I was watching something on television over the weekend and uh, whatever show it was was using that same music bed so I was like wow right well I thought what I was finding was obscure but apparently not so I better do a, uh, a better job here here's one from Otto Kinsel from Facebook. Uh, second try for this one. Otto, apologies. Let's have a crack at it this time. Of the four drivers featured in the film, Gentleman Driver, who do you guys rate the best as a racer? And who do you consider the best current Gentleman Driver around today, counting IMSA, WEC, LMS, etc.? So from memory, Roberto Gonzalez, Paul Delalana, Mike Guash, and Ed Brown were the four, correct? Yes, yes. Um, you want a first crack at this, or do you want me for a crack? Well... I have ties to one of them because I used to engineer Mike Wash in ah. Pro Mazda, and so got a chance to work with him. This was before he moved into IMSA, though, and I would say of the four, the one that has impressed me the most, and hopefully Mike isn't listening, so I'm not angering an old friend, but I would rate Mr. Gonzalez as mm -hmm. the one that has, of those four, has really stood out as... Not only a skilled race car driver, but a hardcore racer. Throw him into the race, and he is going to compete wheel-to-wheel -wheel and try and move forward. It's not always the case, right, Graham? A lot of times with gentlemen Absolutely. drivers, it's hold your position. <laughs> Maybe lose one or two, but it's it's strict damage limitation. Uh, Mr. Gonzalez, uh, I've just always thought as, wow, this guy's a bit of a bear. Get him behind the wheel. You're going to have some fun. Ed Brown, I mean, he's he traveled so far from where he started um, and could be a very capable am in the car. Paul Dallalana, there are times, man, where he gets up on the steering wheel and is really impressive, but then there's often some sort of mistake or error that undoes things. And Mike, honestly, I mean, he did some pretty impressive stuff, but just from a consistency standpoint... I think Gonzalez is really the one that jumps out for me. I think I tend to agree with it. It's great to have Mike Guash, by the way, back at the scene of his greatest triumph. He's back with us in the European Le Mans series this year, and of course, a title winner in LMP3 there. Paul Delana really needs to nail 
um, the big races. Um, you know, he is a delight to have in that paddock. One of the nicest guys um, we have there. The, the second part, by the way, to that uh, to that question, which is who do I think is the best of the current crop of the uh, gentleman, true gentleman in the sports car races? Not bronze or silver rated because that of professionalism uh, but the um, the best gentleman driver little doubt in my mind I'm going to go with David Heinemann Hansen I think at times he is capable of blinding speed back in the day Simon Dolan um, in Europe I certainly, certainly think was very capable of going head to head but David um, I I think he has applied himself as a skill set that is as impressive at times as well some uh, maybe fading professional drivers or emergent professional drivers, but his attitude to it and his joy in it, particularly when he takes the win as he did for his first time in a wet race, uh, astonishingly, um, in a wet race LMP2 at Sebring, I thought was a joy to behold. You just mentioned the one team name I don't know if I've ever heard in motor racing, but it seems so obvious because we have Dragon Speed, Extreme Speed... I've never heard blinding speed. Blinding speed. Did, did we, we should absolutely trademark that right now. Graham Goodwin, look at you. Just all full of ideas. I would say Don Yount, for sure, Ooh. is a really nice guy who drives race cars uh, in America. Um, but if we're talking, I don't know. I don't know in terms of the best gentleman. I struggle there. And this is just me raising my hand. I don't spend a lot of time when I am trackside observing the nuanced performance differences among the non-pros. And it's for one primary reason. I don't care. Do not care. There is not one iota of crap that I give. And I, hopefully that's not me sounding like a jerk. Just obviously I pay attention from a professional standpoint, but in terms of when I am trackside, when I'm shooting, when I'm observing, observing cars and drivers and extraordinary things happening, I'm not really paying attention. If I see a pack of three GTD cars and I notice that one is not keeping up with the other two, I'm probably not going to sit there and try and figure out uh, why that pro-am driver is insufficient in a certain area so it's at least in my head i am a when i go to the track to see impressive things it's that i want to see impressive things and so what stands out to me is when i see a non-pro driver doing impressive things that makes me think that they are in the realm of pros for those who don't I, i'll be really honest i almost don't even know they're there so that's probably a a severe admission of limitations uh within my head i can't say he's the best but one person that has stood out among the pro-am gt model at least as a guy that's impressed me um more often than not it would be a young american actually i guess he's not that young but patrick Lindsay. i've seen him oh yeah oh yeah 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 not look too much like an amateur at times there are times where he has but uh, he's someone where I'm like, wow, okay, this guy is this guy is armed with a fair amount of skill and aptitude, and I know that maybe compared to some other pro ams, he tends to be busy enough outside the car. 
or he is not just pounding around doing a million days per year to improve himself. So anyways, that's at least a name. I wouldn't say best, but someone that where I'm like, all right, good old Patrick Lindsay. He's probably going to do something pretty darn good here. So, yeah, I think uh, certainly fly high, not just uh, in IMSA competition, but WC competition as well, Patrick, and a uh, huge amount of admiration for someone who can mix uh, a real non-motorsport career with uh, with achievement behind the wheel as well. Let's go with Adam Bowman. Uh, I think this one could be my way. His question last week, he did ask a question about the BR01 LMP2 car and the Dome S103. He was asking what happened to the actual cars themselves. Great question. Um the dome was certainly until very recently still in the uh, in the uh, ownership of Stracker Racing and Nick Leventis. And I'd be actually quite surprised if it still still wasn't. I've not been down to Stracker's uh, base at Silverstone for a little wee while, but uh, I will ask the guys and see if I can let you know, Adam. The BRO1s, I'm pre- pretty aware, are still in the ownership of the team, the organization themselves. And there have been occasions on which we've come close to seeing those cars back in competition uh, in Asia. They're still uh, eligible in Asia for one more season in the LMP2 AM class. But uh, those cars do still exist. There's quite a lot of BRO1 chassis, for rather fewer Dome S103 uh, chassis. But uh, those cars, I are still in the hands of the organizations that initially had them designed and built. Let's see, Robin Crickman. Robin, I'm not sure if this is your first time sending in a question or if you have before and I I just failed to register your name. Either way, thank you. You say, I fear this is painfully naive, but I will ask ask anyway. Welcome to my world. While IndyCar and IMSA are for-profit organizations, WC uh, is not, as I understand it. If this is so, uh, why do they need such large payments for participation? I assume there are expenses for staff and supplies, but surely the management types are a dollar per year type folks who serve simply for the honor. Can you explain why they require the funds they ask? Uh, To my knowledge, I believe it's all for profit. Um, Well, let me rephrase that. In terms of the salary and people being paid, uh, yeah, I can't think of anybody that I know of that does that just for the honor or pleasure. Those are all career professionals in place uh, doing what Uh, they do. Um, and as for the WAC being costly, I mean, we do, Graham, have an international series that puts all kinds of cars, people, and equipment on jet or not, well, yeah, jets, uh, maybe on boats on occasion, but there's also something different than the two domestic championships you mentioned, Robin, of IndyCar and IMSA, which are domestic and do not leave North America. Um, it certainly is not cheap to send everything around the world. I'll add this. Um, my rec- recollection is that rather large parts of the FIA are not for profit. Um, so the FIA, of course, is the global governing body, uh, and the FIWEC is a uh, basically a, 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 a it's it's a joint project between the ACO and the FIA. So Robin's question is in part correct but the wec look this is you know this is a championship that is designed to be sustainable over a relatively long period by nature you therefore have to invest in your product you have to invest in the facilities the assets um the personnel 
that you're going to require to make that sustainable. And of course, that doesn't stop when the racing stops from one season. You've got to carry that through to the following season. Um, you know, I'll, I'll happily put my hands up here and say I have a contract with the FIWEC to be one of their TV commentators. That's what I do with the FIWEC. Um, now, you know, how, I, how much are you required to pay them? Uh, a lot of I have to pay them an awful lot of money to do that. But the but the reality there is that clearly. So just to give you a window on that world, Robin, and, and it, it bears repeating this, is, you know, for me to go to, for instance, Japan, um, that takes me time. When I'm um, spending that time um, traveling to and being in Japan, that means I'm not earning money doing other things. That means I need to be paid for that time, and I need to be paid the amount of airfare to feed me, to lodge me, et cetera, et cetera. The same is true of the people that look after the technical side of things, the timing, the PR, the race organization, the paddock organization. That's quite a lot of people. That is a pretty large organization of people required just to put those events on and to carry those events, not just the people who are there and attending, but to a more global audience. I don't mean in any way to talk to – it's a perfectly reasonable question – these things cost money and actually do, when you think about it in those terms, cost quite a lot of money, which, by the way, is why there is such urgency around finding solutions programs. Because with factory programs come the opportunity to tap into rather wider budgets than you would get simply from the entry fees that would come from you know, a pro-am professional race team, uh, where you don't necessarily get anything further in terms of benefit from their marketing efforts and their marketing budgets and their uh, links into other marketplaces. Uh, it is, as most businesses are, highly complex uh, and for that matter, highly competitive. Uh, and I, by the way, use my example simply as an exemplar of one of the number of, uh, of functions that are part of any race championship um, that then feed into why it is that the figures that you and I as private individuals might see as being really pretty large figures, um, when you break it down to the number of people involved, to the other things that have to be sorted in terms of uh, of kit, caboodle, logistics, actually not a lot of people make a huge amount of money from that. I think that large figure mentioned was some sort of fat joke, so you and I are going to have a word after <laughs> we're done recording here, pal. Uh, let's go to Gary Quarterman, who says, Hi, just wondering when you're going to produce a T-shirt, for which I'm sure many of the show's fans would love to purchase Gary, you have highlighted one of my many, many failings. We have a t-shirt. It's been for sale for a while. I just do a very, very bad job of making that information known, promoting it, I guess. I still, I don't know, I still feel a little funny promoting, like, buy a t-shirt with my ugly mug on it. But it's got Graham's prettier mug, so maybe that makes things a little bit better i am i am fairly pretty you are uh that's the sole reason you've been chosen uh gary and dear others who might be interested if you visit toronto as in the lovely city in canada toronto motorsports plural not singular torontomotorsports.com and type in the weekend sports cars you will find indeed 
our show logo in t-shirt form, sticker form, you name it. Uh, if you happen to be based in the U.S., uh, it's a fairly favorable exchange rate. So what I need to do, Gary and dear listeners, is post a link to all of the t-shirts. We have an Inside the Sports Car Paddock t-shirt of Graham and I doing our best to hold on to a GT car uh, and interview the person while we're almost being thrown off. We have our retro throwback Target Chip Ganassi Racing IndyCar livery on an Oreca 07, which never existed. Uh, Weekend Sports Cars t-shirt. We have the... Hamburger and French fry t-shirt of myself and Sebastian Bourdais from our little end of day videos. And what else? We have our weekend IndyCar t-shirt as well, all available on torontomotorsports.com. But this is just a great reminder. I need to uh, make sure that I post a link to all of those items on the somewhat newish marshallpruittpodcast.com site. So it's a really easy thing. So thank you for asking. And, uh, man, we should send you an invoice for uh, reminding us to plug the little T-shirts, I guess. Let's get to our final few questions of the episode, Graham. This comes in from our pal Andrew Baca, who says, Why do modern GT cars cost more than modern prototypes? And he also asks, Why have no GT classes implemented cost capping, which has been working in prototype racing for a decade? And why are we hearing that a certain GTE car is too complex to run in fully independent hands, requiring OEM engineers to manage the systems? Have we gone off the rails with GT racing? He also says we may borrow the Mobile One soapbox if needed, uh, presented to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. I can take a quick stab at the first part. I would yeah, think, go for it. Andrew, I would think the fact that we're talking production line based vehicles uh, being turned into GT vehicles, there's just a big old inherent kind of. I don't even know how to describe it. Just a massive corporate size expense involved with that, knowing that, um, you know, this is not a, in most cases, a kind of jewel-like hand-built car uh, on the shop floor, but one actually involving big production lines, et cetera, et cetera. I would just say that I imagine if we're looking at all the costs being built in, that that is probably a big part of it. If we're looking at someone building a fleet of LMP2 cars, um, not as if they're cheap, but from a production standpoint, it's far more streamlined, much simpler, no real body and white production line type costs to factor in. It's more or less straight from the uh, design office to more or less straight into manufacturing. If we're talking, you know, standard carbon fiber prototypes and whatnot, not, uh, I mean, two frame would be even cheaper. So I think on that end, we're just looking at the institutional automotive manufacturer costs being factored in. Uh, plus, maybe another thing, too, is there's a little bit, Graham, of the brand value being oh, built in without right? a doubt i mean we talk about without a doubt the cost of a ferrari 488 gt3 car being eight hundred thousand dollars or something like that and you go what what in the world uh but it's a ferrari and you are going to pay for the honor of having that prancing horse badge there's also an implied uh, and maybe expected retail value in that as well that might, you know, hold its value in the future compared to P2 
pick a non-brand name LMP2 or even LMP1 customer car that, you know, putting it up on the market, it's not going to be the thing. You know, the, there are no, where there are Porsche files, I can't think of any Liget files waiting to get their hands uh, in a few years on a JSP217. So, again, I, I think, think that's there's something that's in that spot. range for part of the questions. That's, that's spot on. I think um, the, the second part in particular, brand value, it certainly comes into it. I think you have to, when you consider that, and it seems like it's a kind of uh, ethereal second base sort of answer, but think about it this way. Put that exact argument into any other consumer vein. It's about whether you go watch any watch. I'm sitting here at my, my watch that sits on the side of, of uh, the dressing table in the secret area I am in somewhere in Europe at the moment is an Apple watch. I like Apple products. I pay probably a little bit more than I otherwise would have done because I'd prefer to get the Apple watch than insert name of something else bought from Amazon that's not an Apple watch. Uh, same for male grooming products. You want to go and get yourself a perfectly decent, decent aftershave, you might choose to go for a brand and pay a few dollars, a few pounds, a few euros more, or you might choose to pop down the supermarket and get your local Target or Asda. Um, perfectly adequate, possibly smells a little bit like a ditch, um, you know, uh, aftershave. But it's exactly that. It is, the, it is the marketplace that decides. I think we said last week, didn't we, did I tell the story about that? wheel nuts being about a thousand euros a pop um, integrated into the wheels which means for a reasonable season of gt racing a reasonable car owner uh, with the stock of wheels they're supposed to be uh, that they're advised to actually uh, to, to maintain is carrying something like forty thousand euros of investment in wheel nuts um, it's just the way it goes if that's what you want you want a ferrari it comes with some pretty meaty costs to go with it uh, that tend to be rather escalated because of that brand value all righty we're going to go to the final general question we're not even going to roll into a separate fun question we're just going to incorporate it why because there's only one fun question this week. Uh, we're going to go to Brett Ross. I think, Brett, again, this if this is your first time submitting a question, thank you. Uh, Brett says, it looks like the Trans Am series is starting to make a comeback. Do you think manufacturers will become interested again? What do you think needs to happen to make this series great again? Uh, it's an American series, so we can certainly make it great again. Uh, it's good to see Chris Dyson and Boris said in the series to challenge Ernie Francis Jr. Thanks for the podcast. You're most welcome, Brett. I do. I do believe this series is on a slow but continual upward movement. I think the thing they need, because they already have a TV package, it's on CBS Sports Network here in the States, Graham, so it's not widely viewed, but they do have something. Um, I think the thing they need is to hopefully join on with more big-ticket events. I think they're just dealing with something here, Brett, where... They disappeared for about a decade. Even if they didn't, it felt like it. Uh, just in terms of public profile, they really did go away. And so with where they're starting to come back from, I, th I think of IndyCar. I think of IMSA, where these were once super big, raging, successful properties. 
fell on hard times for whatever reasons, and they're now clawing their way back. Or I think Trans Am, the one thing they need right now, I don't even know if it's so much big names coming back. I think folks just kind of forgot it's there. And so Tony Perella, his uh, his team there, they're the ones who own the uh, SVRA uh, Vintage Racing Group, which they do some really cool stuff here in the States as well. I just think the more Tony and his team can find spots for Trans Am on a NASCAR calendar, on a road course, with IndyCar at a few more rounds, I think it's just a more of a public exposure thing, Brett. Because compared to many racing series that we see at road courses, a lot of them are kind of similar. You know, you can go see an IMSA race, and it's going to last longer than a World Challenge race, but the cars are pretty similar if we're talking the GT stuff. Um, IndyCar is IndyCar. There's no real competition for it. NASCAR is NASCAR. But a lot of times you can go and see GT-ish type things racing. You can see some open-wheel stuff at a variety of um, uh, Road to Indy, sponsored by Cooper Tires. Trans Am just is a one, is a giant outlier in the fact that, by and large, the entire field is made up of tube-frame V8-powered Death Stars. It's just the best. It is nothing like you're going to find in IMSA in World Challenge, in anywhere else. And so it's just a very visceral, holy cow, these cars look amazing like nothing else. They're cartoonish. They sound amazing. They're brutally fast. They spit flames all over the place. I just think the more people see it and feel it, for the first time, they're going to be instant fans. For those who loved it and maybe just forgot about it because they're, you know, the, the, prior to Tony taking it over, it, 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 there was a reason to forget it. I think just the more folks see it, Brett, I think it would start to catch on and become an aspirational thing. Um, trust me, I think the more IndyCar drivers, the more IMSA, you know, WeatherTech Championship drivers and so on, I think the more folks get to see these cars run and look up close and look at just the really awesome things that they are capable of doing, you're going to get more people who want to be involved. Hey, what does it cost to put together a team? Um, it's at that stage where... It kind of, it's ready to break out, but it needs more people to see it, to follow it, uh, to potentially drive in it, to become team owners. So it's there, and I can only hope that we do actually get it to a place where it can take off again, because it's just badass. <laughs> I've loved it my whole life, and uh, yeah, I just get big, goofy smiles whenever I see them today. All right, Graham. We're going to our final. Uh, I, I'm going to. Now, before we do, I'm we, gonna, I want to add something to that because because I'm because <laughs> I'm not someone who's actually been brought up with Transam, but I want to relate to you because I think it's pertinent here. Um, a parallel drawn by a motorsport colleague in the last few days, and it was to do with my supposition that motorsport will go away in its current form in the next couple of decades. This person profoundly disagreed and offered the parallel of the horse uh that horses used to be of course principal mode of transportation long distance transportation for very very many people and in concert with that there were sporting aspects of riding a horse and his 
was that actually that has never been more popular uh, that uh, the whilst we don't currently use the horse as uh, transportation on a widespread fashion that the sporting aspects whether or not it's eventing equi- uh, you know uh, dressage or horse racing has never been more popular than it currently is I think there's a parallel there with motorsport, and Trans Am's a great example of it. The fact that it is as badass as it is and tube-framed and loud and fire-spitting and awesome. I can recall a question just two or three weeks ago, and apologies, sir, the person that sent the question in. I can't immediately recall your name. The fact that this is the way it used to be done doesn't make it any less entertaining now and in some ways makes it more so. And I hope we don't lose that uniqueness because – I think it's going to become more special in years to come. Speaking of special every day, much less the years to come, Graham Goodwin, let's get to our final question. It comes from James Counter, and James asks, what's the strangest thing you've had happen whilst you're on air? Well, other than gastric distress, um, uh, which I'm sure has featured at some point. MP, you got an answer for that one, or do you want me to fill the gaping void that is this opportunity? I can throw in two very quickly. Uh, one would be calling the very, very deep overnight section of the Rolex 24, maybe three, four, five years ago. I'm not sure when. I'm, I think I might have mentioned this in the past, but I had been up since 8 a.m., 7 a.m., and so I was coming up on my, I don't know, it was coming up on 24 hours, but I, I my brain was just rooted. And so I was getting to a point towards the end of my three or four hour stint where I had to step away because I could not either think of words to say, nor at the end of a sentence could I remember what I had just said. And so I figured that was that was a really strange occurrence. The other one that stands out as just fun and panicky and scary was back in 2008 or so at the Road America ALMS race. I was in the booth doing a little bit of a commentary or guest, I don't know what, uh, during one of the ALMS sessions. And this was kind of early, like I really hadn't done any play-by-play stuff, so, you know, still learning this stuff. Hell, I don't even know if I've learned anything now, but certainly had essentially zero experience by this point. I had a little bit. Um, Nigel Mansell walked into the commentary radio room booth area, and the host (laughs) saw him, said, uh, I think muted his mic and said, I'll be back in just a minute left the room to go see Nigel Mansell and give him a big hug and, oh, mate, great, hello, all kinds of wonderful stuff. And so I'm thinking back in 15 seconds. It was a good, I don't know, man, it felt like five (laughs) minutes. It felt like five hours. So I'm Uh sitting there wholly unprepared, completely inexperienced, with the entire, not only whatever session commentary, but the entire PA system across the entire four-mile facility, all to myself, going, what the hell do I do now? And, you know, normally I'm the guy answering questions as the host is doing all the lead stuff. And so part of me thinks it was just a prank on me, like, all right, idiot, let's see what you come up with. And so, anyways, I'm sitting there going, hey, so there goes the good old orange card. Boy, it's pretty quick. And, uh, yeah, how about that weather out there? And, uh, I mean, it was... (laughs) 
I should have worn an adult diaper. Had I known, I, I would have put on an adult diaper that day because I just pooped my pants at the simple thought that there are cars on track during an important ALMS session. Folks are accustomed to excellent commentary and insight. I'm the only monkey in the booth. I have no idea what I should be saying. And dead air, it felt like lot prolonged dead air. Every second was just an absolute conviction of my lack of talent. All of those things were true. All of those things happened. I blame you, Nigel Mansell. Plus, I'd never met Nigel Mansell before properly, so I actually wanted to go out and meet him. And by the time, um, by the time it was done, uh, he was gone. So not only did I get hosed in the booth and did folks realize how much of a monkey I was, I didn't get to meet Nigel Mansell properly. So that's my little story. That's fantastic. Uh, for me, lots of small ones, not many real nightmares. We've had birds nesting in the commentary booth in Mexico City. We've had um, just the most – WEC qualifying is uniquely complex when you're calling it because of the, the nature of the kind of two-lap aggregate, which means you need scoring, which we didn't have. And you also need to see what's going on on track. And since we didn't have a TV monitor, we didn't have that either. Um, we had a TV monitor that was cutting in every two or three seconds and cutting back out again, which had a strobing effect, which made me feel dizzy. Uh, this was in the days when I connected on with John Hindoff. So what we actually had was a Skype link to Paul Truswell back in the UK on John's smartphone because that's all we could get. And we did... I gather fairly effectively call that that session beyond that lots of uh, memories of uh, some beloved time spent doing the Nürburgring 24 hours which include uh, John rather famously snoring even more loudly than I do um, so we were getting messages from the internet what on earth is that noise it was John snoring like a rhinoceros on a couch about 20 feet away from the broadcast booth um, and then famously uh, I think I've said it again on the weekend sports cars before the recording. I have never listened back to at all ever, which was, I think 2008, 2009, where we're in the Aston Martin lounge and part of the hospitality offered to their guests. And we were their guests was a full cop. That's by two or three o'clock in the morning that uh, broadcast took on a completely different aspect whatsoever and um yeah i did find myself speaking very much more slowly and in more considered terms than i normally would as did everybody else involved in the broadcast um fabulous time i love what i do i love doing this i particularly love uh, spending time in the booth and bringing racing to you, dear listeners, uh, around the world. Massively grateful for everyone that's actually given me that opportunity to do it. There are so many stories. Many of them will never be printed until the book that I have stored away uh, to be printed upon my death, which could be any time now. Well... I'm in need of some good reading material, so I might kill you when I see you next, just so I can get a new book. I like that. All right, Graham Goodwin, guess what? We have answered, I believe, all but one or two questions that were sent in. We are not too far over our self-imposed hour-and-a-half time limit, and I think we're done. You haven't cursed anymore to close the show, so that's good. I've got a lot of editing to do. 
we're hoping <laughs> that once you are done at uh, Area 62, that we'll be secret. Get, yes, you'll get back to a world where at least 2G Wi-Fi exists. Other than that, I'm going to say thanks to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, and I'm going to say thanks to you, brother, and uh, let you take us out. Uh, I'll take you out. Um, it's been a heck of a day for lots of reasons, some of which I will be able to bring to you uh, in weeks to come. Um, I'm going to say a, a quick thank you. We're putting this together on uh, – is this Monday still, isn't it? It is. It's Monday, it's Monday still. Uh, thanks to all of you, by the way. You've dropped messages. Uh, it is a – it's my birthday today, I have to tell you. It's been a quiet one away from my family. How did I um, not but know Lots this? and lots and lots of messages. Because you, don't, you just don't care. Well, it's true. <laughs> I'm just acknowledging. Well, how did I mean? Oh, oh, man. Happy birthday double, double, to thanks, you. Mike. Double dime. Double dime. Oh, <laughs> wow. Well, man. But, hey, but it's okay because the people I'm here with uh, we've been well refreshed this evening before we came out here, spending time with some good friends, and I'll be back in the loving arms of my family in just a couple of days after we're done here with what um, I hope and expect will be uh, a fun couple of days doing some racing stuff. For now, though, thanks again. Thank, thanks enormously uh, to those of you that are sending in the questions. Just always of high quality, always something to surprise and delight. There's going to be a lot more to talk about coming forward. Marshall and I oh, have been talking oh, talking oh, in recent days. Oh, we can have some fun, Marshall, aren't we? Yeah. When folks send in the questions saying, how do you guys handle not talking about big things or whatever things? Um, it is going to be an interesting rest of the year um i will just leave it at that uh and with that happy birthday graham goodwin you freaking fart knocker you should have told me in the beginning and i should have uh, been well, a better I've... friend to have known and yeah a card or a cake or anything 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 i, I did <gasps> unfortunately i sent it to the sebring media center tent it was, um, it was the post yeah uh, yeah good <laughs> all right mate well go drink things that are going to put you to bed and uh make your mind your brain hurt in the morning all right we're done it, it, it's dissolved into stupidity yet again one of my specialties thank you my friend for making time on your birthday thanks to everyone for listening and we will be back to you next week <laughs>